We've been asked to mark song number 438. They're getting some things taken care of, and well, they'll have everything ready just in a moment for us to, to give thought to our lesson tonight. Let me go ahead and speak a little bit about, of course, the place of it. We, of course, on, on a rather traditional basis, have chosen one Sunday night each month for a, a period of questions and answers in which you, of course, make provision for the actual title of that particular lesson. Namely, you pick the subjects. The little box out there in the foyer, you drop your questions there or otherwise make them available to me. And we try to reserve that particular time and we look with, uh, with, with some interest at those questions and the answers that the Word of God provides. Certainly, as we do that, it's always our goal and our desire to, to allow the Word of God to do the speaking. In just a moment ago, you'll notice that it was read from 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 2. Notice that Paul stated that he and his companions did not handle the Word of God deceitfully. They didn't use it to per perhaps set forth or proclaim some toy theory or some particular doctrine, but rather they handled it correctly. They handled it notably, and that's our desire as well. We wish to allow God's Word to speak in a very clear fashion and never present our opinion or never present our speculation on, on matters even that we'll discuss tonight. It is the case, and as you look at the particulars of these questions, the first question that we will be looking at this evening, and I'll just uh, basically share with you the reading of, uh, of these questions. The first question is, if you'll be turning with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 20, our first question will be drawn from that passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 20. And the question reads as follows. What are profane and vain babblings? Identify them carefully and clearly so that we can avoid these in our daily Christian walk. And with that in mind, let's now read verse 20 of 1 Timothy 6, for it says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. And so a very pertinent question. What are these vain babblings, these profane matters that Paul so urgently told Timothy to avoid? And of course, by virtue of the inspiration of the Word of God, we would anticipate that we too ought to avoid whatever it is that that describes. Let's take just a few moments then and journey through some of the teachings in First and Second Timothy and, and draw an interesting conclusion. It may be that as you've studied those two books, First and Second Timothy, you've often been impressed with how often Paul urged Timothy to avoid certain kinds of speech, to avoid certain kinds of expression. For example, turn back to chapter 1 of the same book and look with me at verse 4. Paul writing there said, "...neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do." Now, we're well aware that there were those who, at that time at least, gave particular interest in genealogical records. Certain persons could trace their heritage back to a certain 
to a certain individual. For example, you remember the Jews quite notably fell in that kind of category in many cases. Do you recall in Matthew chapter 3, they in fact told John, we are children of Abraham. You may remember they tried that on Jesus as well in John chapter 8. We are the children of Abraham, mind you. Now, don't be insulting us or challenging us in this way. So they thought that since they could trace their ancestry to Abraham, for example, that they in some way had a head start on pleasing God. Well, you'll notice even in Timothy's day, you'll notice here in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul urged him, don't you give heed to fables. Now that word means myths. Don't you give your interest in preaching and teaching to that which is just make-believe. Now you and I know there are people throughout the ages who've given their interest to things like that. They have found a toy theory, a toy doctrine, if you please, and they have harped on that. Although in many ways it's not exactly what the Bible ever taught. Look two verses later. Verse 6 of chapter 1. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside to what? Vain jangling. What's vain jangling? If you're reading in another translation, it may well be you observe vain talking. That means foolish discussions. It is possible to give a lot of attention to something that's really rather foolish. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who could talk for an hour and say nearly nothing? Who, in fact, could use words and they have put together ideas and when it's all said and done, they really didn't have much of anything to say at all. In essence, it would appear as if something like that was at least a part of what Paul urged Timothy here. Don't be given to things like that. The Word of God means something. Don't give your attention to fanciful matters that are basically foolish discussions. With that in mind, let's go back down to chapter 6, verse 20. Very near the end of this book, O Timothy, do you notice the exclamation that starts the verse? In Greek, there is a word that carries with it that sense of exclamation. In English, we see it as that word O, just the single letter O. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. We might pause here and observe. Timothy, of course, had been bequeathed the truth of the Word of God. He had been given the character, the nature, and the thoroughness of that which is not subject to human fancy and human speculation. It's not vain jangling, and it's not foolish talking in any way. It's truth that can save the souls of people. No wonder now he continues to say this. After highlighting, keeping what's been committed to your trust, which of course is the truth and the faith, avoid profane and vain babblings. The word profane comes from a word that means to be common, to ignore that which is sacred. Now, we all know from the Word of God that there has been a distinction from God made between certain things and certain other things. That was especially true in the Old Testament. You recall that the people of Israel, for example, were to highly esteem certain things. Ezekiel had a lot to say about that in chapters 20 through 22 of his book, didn't he? 
But yet we notice here that Timothy was to appreciate the fact certain things by virtue of God's decree are sacred and they must never be treated common. They must never be, in fact, failed to look upon them with the appreciation that God gave them. With that in mind, he said, avoid profane, and then he said, vain babblings. That's this talking that we were just mentioned a minute ago. Same thrust. It is still the case, isn't it, that in Timothy's day, given places like Athens and places like Corinth and places like Ephesus, there was a great emphasis on the intellectual presentation of what people so often like to hear. Remember in Acts 19, they loved to hear some new thing. They just wanted to hear something new. They weren't interested in the truth so much. Sometimes today, there can be instances wherein that kind of thing is still true. But let's make this observation. Look at the way the verse ends. Maybe this gives us a strong clue to some specifics of application in our day. So we've highlighted avoiding profane and vain babblings, but now note this with me. And oppositions of knowledge, falsely so-called. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. Now you and I, of course, appreciate that our English word know, K-N-O-W, comes right out of that. And furthermore, if you're reading in the King James translation, you may notice the word science is what appeared. Oppositions of science, that word literally is knowledge. May I suggest to you that just as surely as it was true in Timothy's day, it is still true today that there is a general sense of knowledge that most people are very ready to accept and very ready to pursue and very ready to encourage even though it is not the true knowledge from God. Let me share a few particulars with you because it seems as if that may well be the critical thing that Paul was encouraging in Timothy. Don't you simply give your mind over to what culture says you need to preach. Don't you give your mind over to simply endorsing what people want to hear. That's not ever been the case for those who would proclaim the things of God and for those that would be believers in the matters of God either. That word science perhaps brings to our mind things like the general theory of evolution. The overwhelming majority of people actually are quick to say, well, of course God created it that way. He did it over millions and billions of years, and they will in fact read that right into the Bible, though it surely doesn't say it. And in fact, it doesn't teach it at all. The Bible says He made everything in six days. No question, no other way to look at that. For He defines each of the days. It had a morning and an evening. Doesn't that highlight it carefully? It could have been millions of years per day. But could I also suggest that it really goes even beyond physical characteristics such as that? What about ethical matters? The overwhelming issue sometimes in Paul's day, and certainly we still see it today, the understanding in the mind of many that look, you have to be tolerant and you have to be accepting. In fact, to do otherwise is to be judgmental and God didn't make you a judge. Now that's the dogma that is so often accepted. It isn't true, of course. But there are so many who have adopted this, quote, political correctness. 
Notice Paul said to Timothy, don't you be given to political correctness. Don't you be given to merely what culture says ought to be because that's merely what he describes as vain babblings. There's no place for that in the interest to save souls, and there's no place for that in the interest of trying to do that which the God of heaven has set forth. You can go beyond that to choose many other things to select. Again, matters which the world overwhelmingly chooses to think is right, but which are not. It is with that said, that kind of idea is what Paul had in mind when he addressed those words to Timothy. What about question number two? Another question, and this one asks the very interesting question. What, if anything, does the Bible say about cremation? Cremation. We understand well what's under discussion here. The matter of the disposition of the body after death. What about cremation? A very interesting question. Let's, in fact, spend a few moments and think at least briefly about what the Word of God has to say about this interesting subject. We know very well that God, of course, is the giver of life. Acts 17, verses 25 and following identify that it's in Him we live and we move and have our very being. That means that just as Job declared in Job 33, 4, it is He that gives us our breath. It is He through whom we enjoy the nature of this life in the flesh. But just as surely as we understand that, we also know that life in this flesh is not permanent. There's a point, an appointment of death. Hebrews 9.27 will say, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. There is this transition from life in this flesh to life in that world beyond. It's death that is the channel, the thoroughfare through which that transition takes place. But of course, when that death occurs, we know that the Spirit, which really is you and me, it departs the body. James 2.26 still says, For as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, although James was saying much about the teaching concerning faith and works, isn't it amazing that there he tells us so much when the Spirit that is you and I indwells our body, our body is said to be alive. But when the Spirit departs the body, the body is said to be dead. Now, that Spirit is just as alive as it has ever been, but of course it's dwelling elsewhere, just not in the physical body. But the question then becomes that at the time of that Spirit's departure, it leaves the body behind and the body begins its deterioration. It begins its decay. In the words of Genesis 3.19, just as God told Adam, In the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat bread, until thou return unto the dust. For out of it wast thou taken, and unto it shalt thou return. The same kind of sentence is, of course, told to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. But at this point, that does bring us to the question, what do we do with this body that remains behind, in which the Spirit no longer dwells? The Word of God has a number of things to say about various ways that that body has been treated 
over the ages and centuries. Certainly the thing with which we're quite familiar is no doubt burial. When Abraham's beloved wife Sarah passed away, he took his special measures to provide a place for the burial of her body. He, in fact, purchased a cave known as the Cave of Machpelah in Genesis 23. And it was in that cave that he buried Sarah, her body, I should say. It was in that same cave that Isaac buried him when he passed away in Genesis 25. It was in that same cave that Isaac and Rebekah, their bodies were both buried. It was in that same cave where Jacob and Leah's bodies were buried. Now, Rachel wasn't buried there, as you and I remember from Genesis 35. But isn't it interesting that burial is under discussion there? And it's mentioned in a number of other places as well. Didn't Jesus on one occasion in Matthew 8, 22 say, Let the dead bury their dead? Now, the Lord was, of course, teaching a rather interesting truth in a number of ways, but at least a part of it, He did reference the act of burial. Wasn't it true that when they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7, one of the next statements made in Acts 8 verse 2, they made provision for his burial. They buried the body of Stephen. So we can easily see that it's certainly appropriate to bury the body. But we notice there were other things that on occasion were done to the, to the bodies as well. Consider, for example, some of these uh, other instances in which I might especially mention. In Exodus 40, verse 30, or Exodus 14, I should say, verse 30, as well as Exodus 15, verse 4, we have mentioned thereof bodies that drowned, and we notice that they, in fact, would have met their demise by the decay in that way. Drowning. You and I know that in the shipwreck mentioned in Acts chapter 27, Paul took his special measures and those shipmen were very mindful of the fact that they might have drowned based on the statements that they made to Paul. You might remember that Jonah's case, those shipmen who threw him overboard, they were fully expecting that no doubt the sea would consume and engulf him, that, that he would meet his demise, the body deteriorating in that fashion. In addition to drowning, what about bodies that were consumed in fire? Now that surely makes us think about cremation, doesn't it? In Joshua chapter 7, we have a rather extensive description of a gentleman named Achan. Now you recall that the children of Israel were journeying, of course, and they had arrived at that place of Jericho. And you might recall that God had given orders concerning the, the spoil of that city. Achan took of it, hid it under his tent, but God knew all about it. In the final analysis, Achan was identified. He made confession of what he had done, but you will remember the sentence in verse 25 was, they put him to death and all of his family, and then they burned their bodies. Interesting, isn't it? The text says, again, that their bodies were burned, and that was God's consideration for the children of Israel, at least with regard to Achan. Perhaps another example might be this one in 1 Samuel 31. Verse number 12 makes an interesting observation. 
You might recall that Saul and Jonathan had been killed on Mount Gilboa. They had met their end that way. And the Philistines, you may recall, had taken their bodies and displayed them in Bethshan as a symbol of their victory over God's people. So can you imagine a body tacked up or at least made presentation on a wall? That's what had happened to Saul's body at that point. But the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard about that, and they journeyed all the way to Bethshan, took down that body, took it back to the, to the actual land of Israel, and burned it. Burned it. So there's a scene again where the body was consumed by burning, by fire, if you please. Maybe all of that having been said, you might notice some other examples in the Old Testament wherein burning of a body took place. May I suggest 2 Kings 23, verses 16 and 20, as well as Amos chapter 6, verse number 10. All of these at least make reference to the action of burning a body. I would say maybe in finality that we could come to this statement. Maybe one of the things that has been an issue that has brought some element of trouble to the mind of some relative to the act of cremation is they think the body needs to be intact in some way so that the future resurrection might have the particular place that they would wish it to have. But let's understand this. Regardless of the decomposition of a body, and let's face it, Bodies like those of Abraham, who died, well, over 5,000 years ago. Now, that body is long since decomposed. And the same is true of the other Bible worthies of the Old Testament. And yet, we are told that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there will be the resurrection of the body. God will make provision of that body, and regardless what happened to the actual physical one, He's going to make provision for that body into which that person's spirit will then reappear. But it's God's provision of that body. It won't be the remade one literally here demanding that it still have the tactfulness that it had at the time of death. Isn't it a bit interesting that statements such as John 5, verses 28 and 29, could I ask you to note what the Lord said? Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when... All that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. Now the Lord said all, whether they died by burning, whether they died by drowning, whether their body has been buried, doesn't matter. All will come forth. Now that surely would indicate the nature of the completeness of this event and the thoroughness of it. Maybe it is in regard to that we could say, as far as I'm able to tell, the Bible does not say there's anything wrong with cremation. The disposition of the body, once the Spirit has left, seems to be up to the individual choice of not only perhaps the person, but of the family. They might choose burial. They might choose cremation. They might choose something else to be done with it. But the fact is, the Word of God says, God will provide the incorruptible, eternal body that'll be suited to that spirit when that day of resurrection appears. That being said, that was Paul's great emphasis in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35, wasn't it? So cremation, what about question 3 to 9? 
The third question of the evening is a very short question. What will we actually do in heaven? Isn't that a good question? What will we actually do in heaven? I suspect that the person who asked that question, and I don't know who asked any of these, but the person, no doubt, and perhaps it's rested on all of our thinking, we, of course, appreciate our life here, and each day there are things to be done, and each week there are activities to be completed. And we often have as a mindset the appreciation of completion of things that are needful. Sometimes they're provision in some way for the body. Sometimes they're provision for our families. Sometimes they're provision in other walks of life. The idea, it would seem, revolves around the thought of work. Isn't it true that we are very acclimated to work? God told Adam and Eve, He gave them work to do, to dress and to keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. And we learn in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, If a man won't work, neither ought he to eat. Jesus said in John 9 verse 4, in terms of the day, He recognized and even helped us appreciate there that during the day is when, of course, work is to be done for the night cometh when no man can work. Now, that doesn't say that we cannot in any way work at night, but what the Lord was saying is that in this body there are tasks and chores and things that are recognized as needful to be completed, and there's a time in which you recognize the need to finish them. But this person has asked a great question, what are we going to do in heaven? Ceaseless ages, no such thing as time. What will we do for all that period? Isn't that a good question? Let me offer some thoughts that I hope might be helpful. May I suggest that much of this may be an issue of understanding on our part. Isn't it so that here we are acclimated to the concept of time? We just know so much about it. We live in relation to it. And even the wise man Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 pointed out, there's a time to live and a time to die. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time for laughter and a time for crying. And so many other elements are included in that list. And so we're familiar with time and the appropriateness of it. May I suggest in regard to that time, it's important that we remember in that eternal realm wherein heaven is, there is no time. The sense, if you please, of recognition concerning that is no more. There's a sense in which one of the songs we often sing, we probably ought to keep in mind that there's, although there's a poetic license, no doubt, in using it, it's really not biblical. It has to do with that, that song that talks about for 10,000 years, there is no year in heaven. There is no span of time recognized, and even with the passage of what we might realize as 10,000 years, you haven't even begun. Eternity has no end. There's never a time that it will change in terms of character, in, in terms of being, if you please, something that has a different nature to it. And it's in that sense that I think the Bible at least affords us some thought concerning this question. 
The Word of God highlights that in that realm, there is incorruption. There is no decay. There is no deterioration. And here, that's the only thing we ever know about. Things wear out. Things fade. Things tarnish. Things have to be replaced. But there, there is none of that. Absolutely none. And therefore, there's never any change in which there is appreciation of the need for so much of what we know has to be done here. It's in that sense I would offer that the answer to this question may well involve a whole different way of thinking. It is for that reason I would at least offer this. We learned earlier tonight, and I think it's a bit interesting, when we talked about cremation a moment ago, that the Spirit indwells this body. But may we never forget, we are ultimately spirit beings. You may remember that Genesis 2 verse 7 says, that God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living soul. The spirit and the body are, are completely different. Our spirit dwells in this body for now, but there's coming a time when the spirit will be released from all the shackles and all the restrictions of the body. In heaven it will be free to then do that for which it was ultimately made. May I suggest that no doubt the kind of existence that's present there in which that Spirit is able to participate, we can certainly think of some things that the Spirit, as described in the Word of God, so longingly participates in. One of them is the adoration of worship. Here we know there are protracted times we do this. A few times a week at most. There that spirit free from any such shackles of otherwise what we'd call time will be free to engage in that all that it would prefer. Will that include singing? I strongly suspect so. Revelation 15 seems to describe these voices and the songs of those that are the faithful saved. But may I suggest no doubt more than that, remember we'll be in the absolute presence of the God of heaven the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation describes that throne in Revelation 4. That throne that was so majestic, is that an impression of what some things we might see? It would seem so. There was a rainbow over that throne in Revelation 4, verses 2 and following, highlighting the exquisite beauty of that place. Will our spirit find the opportunity and find the lovely occasion without any end to associate with fellow saved, to enjoy the characteristic of worship as often as preferred? It would seem so. I might add to all of that the following. One of the only clear statements that I was able to find is found in Revelation 22, verses 3 and verse 5, where there it does describe that those who are in heaven will serve the Lamb. But that's all it says. What service will we be doing? I can't say that I know for sure. If, if you have been able to find other verses to amplify that thought, please share, share it with all of us. But it does say that we will serve the Lamb. So apparently Jesus 
will be such that there will be opportunities for us to serve Him because He's the Lamb. And in that service, we will be able to pour forth the fullness of that which is our existence. You may also notice in the other descriptions found later in that chapter that there is something said about the tree of life that brings forth its fruit. Will we be in some way, on occasion, able to harvest? Interesting question. I don't know that. Is that a poetic way? Is that a figurative way of describing some other events? Perhaps. I'm going to end my attempted answer to this question by simply saying, I wasn't able to find any additional verses that offered anything I wish to share more than what I've said. I do think that the perspective of time being no more, the perspective of incorruption being a reality, changes completely everything we have ever known about existence. And it's that change that will offer a complete difference to what our existence will be. We do know that Jesus said that there are many mansions or many rooms in John 14. Will there be places of residence? Apparently. Will there be perhaps some need to again appreciate the unending nature of that place? My suspicion is that with the perfection that God has to offer, there's nothing to worry about not having enough to do. That's just my, my, my feeling. Remember, we are told there's no pain, no crying, no death, no disappointment, and no sadness, Revelation 21.4. That being said, we're not going to miss anything about this place. Nothing, absolutely nothing we will miss. But having entered that golden gate of heaven, we will enjoy the fullness of our spirit being not for a little while, but forever, unending infinity. What a joyous thought. Tonight's three questions have been questions that are very, very interesting. I would say that over the months that we were unable to do these questions and answers, I have a host of additional questions. So we probably will have another lesson of questions and answers very, very soon. Tonight, could we at least say that as we study that opening question about the vain babblings, and as we looked at cremation, as we gave thought to what will we do in heaven, doesn't it thrill the heart to think about the hope that's ours, the hope of which we spoke this morning? It could well be in this assembly tonight someone would wish to rededicate your life to the cause of Christ. Maybe in due course, though once faithful you were, that isn't true of you tonight. And you know that Jesus, more than anything, would want you to come back to that walk in faithfulness. We'd be honored to pray on your behalf tonight. You, of course, must repent of errors and make confession of them, and we'd be delighted to approach God in prayer for your strength this evening. As we hopefully have been encouraged today with these worship services and Bible studies, we're now suited for a week of faithful service to God. But if tonight you would wish prayers of encouragement, prayers of strength, just come down and let us know that. We'd be honored to pray for you. It's one of the joyous activities of being a brother and sister in Christ. This song of encouragement has been selected, and we're going to stand and sing that very briefly. If we could be of some help in any way, we would encourage you, let us know. While together we stand and while we sing.